Zach, uh, I have to level with you, man. There is a fundamental issue with the Funderburg family. Fundamental? You're kind of coming at me here. I mean, from what I know of you, it's not necessarily you, but uh, your predecessors, those who go mm, before you. My in the ancestors. Lineage, your ancestors known as Don and Jimmy Funderburg. Oh, no. And I just literally called them out. <laughs> and I know I'm going to get a text from them. You will. But I love them both. Yes, and they love and, you. Yeah. We'll, we'll, it's all love yes, you. Yes, yes, yes. But Anyway, Zach, keep going. The fundamental issue is... Well, I'll just just let me paint close a picture. Eyes. Close okay, your eyes. Okay, my other goes. If you're driving, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open, listener. If you're driving, or maybe like if you're a hair cutter, hairstylist, you should probably keep your eyes open as well. <laughs> That's true. That's and true. talk with your guest if you're a hair cutter. It's right. Yeah. Good yeah. For them. Anyways, yeah. if you can close your eyes, you're sitting there. Okay. And there's an item that you need to your mm. right or left, depending on the home you're in. Okay. So you're in a home. Okay, I'm in a home. And uh, some people refer to this place as the porcelain throne. Mm, the Oval Office, I know. <laughs> the Oval <laughs> Office. Yeah, and some people uh, – there's a lot of names for this place. <laughs> Obviously. The Can is another <laughs> one. one. Of my the personal The restroom. The John, which is just unfortunate. <laughs> Shout out John. The Can. I any, love that. Any, uh, any John, any <laughs> listeners out there named John? I'm so sorry. You. We ruined your name. And uh, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. What was, what yeah. was said. Um, Banyo. The, the fun. The Banyo. Wow. <laughs> In yeah, it's multicultural. Yeah. Spanish. I but Mexico. Zach, I'm, I'm dilly-dallying because I'm afraid of the statement I'm about to make because I know the, the repercussions that it will have against <laughs> me and the Funderburg family. Say it. In your house in Brands, Missouri, not your house, your family's house. Yeah, you yeah. not own a house. I live there for you a while. You own an apartment. I do. And uh, so I go there in the summers when I'm working at Canacuck. They welcome me into their home, and I am so gracious. Yeah. They, they graciously welcome me, and yeah. I am grateful. You're grateful. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, sometimes I go to the bathroom, sometimes. and uh, I need some toilet paper. I mean, everyone uses it. Everyone and needs it. When I look to my left, in your house, it's left in the Brands home. Yeah, it is. Look left. to my left without fail. Mm. The role is put on backwards. Well, backwards in in your opinion, exactly. this is <laughs> this is a fundamental issue, a fact. I agree with you. And I didn't. I haven't noticed it in my home. The toilet paper should drape over. You should not have the piece that you're about to grab touching the wall. That's mm. inconvenient and inefficient. But dare I say, it is touching the wall, just coming up the other way. Uh, I mean, yeah, if it's like dangling <laughs> super long. Yeah. So why? Why does that make it so much better? Because it's if it's more efficient. You don't feel like a bumbling buffoon as you're <laughs> reaching up the wall, just hitting the hitting the wall, trying to grab. Your family's not bumbling buffoons. This is how I feel. Yeah, this, I'm so in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so in trouble for this. But when you're reaching your hand up the back wall, trying to find or just the endless spin. Of the toilet paper. Okay. But as you're spinning it, it just continues to wrap it, unfortunately. Oh, I see. So basically, the Funderburg family gets almost everything right except for the way that they place toilet paper. Oftentimes, this is my confession, I'll literally switch it. I think you should. I'm on your team here. I I will say I've never noticed it in my own home with my family, but I have noticed that being a problem places, and I too switch it because I do think it is much more convenient to have it coming over the top. Absolutely. And you know what just brought this up is we're in your apartment, and I just went to the bathroom, and I look to my left as I'm I'm standing for what I was just doing. Oh, (laughs) I was standing. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Good, good, good. And uh, I look to my left, and the toilet paper roll is on the wrong way. I'm like, I literally walk out, you and your bride, Abby. I'm like, which one have you put on the toilet paper roll? And the common denominator is my brother stayed with us last night. Your brother, 
who was raised in the Funderburk home <laughs> under the loving care mm. of Don and Jimmy Funderburk. Yeah. And so he has now been trained incorrectly <laughs> and he is leaving just an onslaught of homes <laughs> oh, no. with toilet paper rolls backwards. Oh, we have to apologize to the Lambda Chi house in yeah. Arkansas. In yeah. Arkansas. If there's any Lambda Chi's listening. Yeah. Probably wow. not. Probably not, but prove us wrong. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm sorry that it scarred you like that. I mean, you can tell I'm passionate about this. You issue. are. It's it's more convenient to have it that way. Or what about whenever it's at like in a public place and it has the cover on it and it's sideways and so it can either go away from you or back to you. You know what I'm saying? Um. Yeah, I do. I think that one I don't have a preference. Okay. I think if I had to pick, Probably I would want it to, to go towards me because yeah. when I'm ripping, I want it to instantly be caught by the little A bad edge. rip on toilet paper is the worst. It is the worst. When it's you just so have a little bad. dangly piece, yeah. it's unusable. Like, what do I <laughs> crumple or fold, Zach? Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders are learned from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Cooper McCrumpleson. <laughs> I gotta do a little both. I crumple. I'll crumple and fold. My, I'll crumple initially, then fold my crumple. I always crumple. Anyway, we've got a great, <laughs> great episode. You are so in trouble for this intro. I know, man. I'm, we just, I just... Worth it. So worth it. Yeah. Um, we have Miss Jennifer Eggers on today. Mm. Eggers. She uh, wrote she a book. Pulled her crumple. <laughs> You're Who knows? To... It probably didn't come up in the interview. <laughs> it did not. Uh, surprisingly, it did not. You can send gotcha. her an email. You can find her on LinkedIn and gotcha. shoot her a message if you really want to know. I don't think that I will. You shouldn't. Uh, she wrote a book that's very interesting. It's called Resilience. It's not about bouncing back. Gotcha. And she's been through a string of experiences in her life that she uh, talks about in this interview that has created this sense in her that she is very resilient. And mm. then when things come, when the storms come, when things get hard, she's able to push through and continue to persevere because of the experience she's had in the past. And so she sat her friends down and said, what word describes me? And they all looked back at her and said, you're nothing if you're not resilient. Yeah. And so it, it guided her to write this book and become a speaker and executive coach uh, to other people, how you can create a resilient culture. And this is something we need coming out of an epidemic, a pandemic, an economic crisis yeah. and everything else that's happened in this year. If your business and you personally are not resilient, you will not You're continue to go. Right. <laughs> you will crumple. No, no. <laughs> you will crumble. Or fold. You yeah. might crumble or fold. Yeah, you might. Yeah, you might do both. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> wow, the crumble fold jokes keep going. That one was fully on you. I, I was know. totally steered away from that. You just absolutely, you just roped us back in. Well, you just rolled us back into we it. Did. <laughs> we were rolling back, yeah, towards mm. you. And yeah, anyway, uh, but it's a very fascinating episode. And, and the title of her book is also good because I think if you think about resilience, you think of something happening to you and just you bounce back. Right. But it's not about that. It's much, much more because it's about finding ways that re resilience and through tough times will actually propel you forward. Yeah. Instead it's of not, just bouncing Just because it's hard doesn't mean you have to fall back. Exactly. Yeah, you can you can progress through hard times. And she even talks about it like as a ball. Like it naturally, if you drop a ball, each bounce back is lower and lower. Because if you just try and bounce back, you're just going to slowly drift and drift mm. away. And yeah. it's going to get harder and harder. So you want to push to fight for resilience and to fight through the hard times it's so, so important. But Jennifer is a fascinating lady and she gives us a lot of great insight on this area, how we yeah. can all be more resilient and how we can train and build resilient businesses through tough times. But here she is, our interview with the Let's do it. Jennifer Eggers. 
Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being on, letting us ask you some questions. I want to start by just having you introduce yourself. Who are you? Where are you? Have you had COVID yet? And I mean, just what are you up to? Uh, well, I'm Jennifer Eggers. I uh, am living in Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, kind of in the middle of the Northeast Corridor. And uh, no, I have not. Okay, good. I, I was yet. worried. I was worried. No, we're safe. <laughs> and you can't, I don't think you can get it through video, but. <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, just to uh, make sure the listeners know, we are distanced right now. We are very we distanced. <laughs> Okay. So you've written a book. It's called Resilience. It's not about bouncing back. You've, you've written a couple. And um, I, I just want to talk about that concept of resilience today. Uh, where did that come from in your life? And what does that look like for you? Yeah, um, it's, been, it's been kind of a, a long journey. But um, I will say that about um, maybe five, six years ago, when I you know, relaunched the business after a, a kind of a hiatus there and, and said, you know, okay, what's the story that only I can tell? I mean, I had gotten to a point in my career where I was coaching leaders. I was doing a lot of leadership development, um, mostly quoting others, you know, and talking about the research. And I was very comfortable in the academic space um, with all the theories and whatnot, and, and even was pretty good at applying them. But I couldn't, you know, I had to figure out what's the story only I can tell. So I asked 10 people that very question that knew me very well and were close to me. And to a person, they came back to me and they said, Jennifer, you're nothing if not resilient. So you really should probably talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I started to ask myself, well, what was it that allowed me, you know, to get to this point? And at that point, um, I had I had come back from several, you know, major setbacks that, you know, people that knew me said would have crushed anybody. Right. And one of them, I mean, I would say the, the first one of those was uh, I was a competitive athlete. I was a top 50 water skier in the country. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, at the peak of my, you know, in the middle of my ski career. So the, the first car accident took me out of, um, out of training. The second car accident took me out of competition altogether. And, um, and then when I was rehabbing, you know, a year later, um, I was trying to come back and found out that I had a blood disorder that meant that I could no longer do cardio at all. And so I had to really redefine my life because up until that point, um, even my work life revolved around the sport. And so, um, it was a, a pretty big setback, but I you know, came back from that, Launched a business in the middle of a recession um, in 09. Leadership went completely belly up because nobody was buying leadership development in that right. year. And so I had to kind of come back from that. We uh, rebounded from that and then had, you know, another health scare. And then another um, was had a car that caught fire and literally dove out of a flaming vehicle. And, um, you know, just one experience after another after another. Mm-hmm. And people started to say, hey, what is it that you've got, you know, that we don't have? And so I started to ask myself the same question. And what I figured out was that it, there's two ways to build resilience. So first of all, what I had to learn was, can, is this something you can build? Because it didn't make any sense to me to talk about it if you couldn't build it. So minimal research five, six years ago, um, there wasn't a lot out there. But I learned that you could actually build resilience. And there were really two ways to build it. One was to go through a whole bunch of, you know, um, tough situations and challenges and, and you just get stronger by going through all this stuff. Right. But the problem with that is that not everybody does. And so there were people I knew that probably went through worse, you know, crap than I did probably, um, went through even less, you know, but they weren't able to come back. And so the question is, well, what makes some people able to come back and some not? And so to me, um, I looked back and I realized that it wasn't what, it wasn't the situations that made me resilient. It was the preparation I had done before the situations. Mm-hmm. And so um, I did some really intentional things that I was able to kind of create a framework and a model around. And once I created the framework, um, 
you know, and I, it's, it's almost like I can't completely take credit for it because it was a bit, um, you know, it was a lot of inspiration. I think a lot of, um, a lot of prayer and a lot of, a lot of uh, divine intervention then probably right. yeah, yeah, yeah. went into creating that framework. So I refer to it almost as a gift, but, um, you know, I, I built the framework and then I started validating and saying, okay, you know, is this, if someone follows these steps and if you go through this, will you really be able to build it? And time and time again, um, it proved itself. And then, you know, I, I started talking about it. And so the first time I spoke about it, um, and this has never happened before or since, but I got a standing ovation and the crowd literally rushed the stage. And so I couldn't get out to, um, to let the next speaker on the stage because they were just surrounding the stage. And I thought, you know, oh my God, I don't care if, um, if I do nothing else and have to live in a mud hut, like I'm right. going to have to get this message out. And I was so excited. So um, the, the talk became a three-day workshop and then okay. that became the book. Huh. And I think the big differentiator is that probably the most important thing I learned in that whole experience is that the three characteristics, and I'll tell you what they are, <laughs> but yeah. three characteristics of resilient people and organizations are identical. Mm. And so what that means is that if you can become a resilient individual and you can learn to be more resilient, you can do the exact same thing for your company and you can help your team and your company be more resilient. And to me, that was the power of this because I, I probably will never be a, you know, a, a big personal growth um, person. My co-author does a phenomenal job at that, but it, right. you know, corporate training was really my thing, corporate executives. And if we can take this and build more resilient companies, there's so much power in the people we can touch, the lives we can touch, and how much better we can make our situation in corporate America. And that's really what I set out to do. Yeah, that's amazing. And that even leads us to 2020, where you could make a pretty strong case where if there's one characteristic of your business and in your personal life that you want to build looking forward to what it's going to look like coming out of this year, it's oh, yeah. resilience. And we have health crises, we have economic crises, we have racial tension in our country. And if we do not build resilient people, resilient organizations, resilient children, yeah. we're going to walk out of this weaker than when we went in. And so kind of what, what I mean, looking at the title of the book, I kind of like for you to explain it too. the resilience. It's not about bouncing back. What yeah. kind of define resilience, kind of set that framework you were talking about. What is resilience uh, just to set the ground floor? Yeah. So uh, we believe that resilience is about being energized and elevated by disruption so that you can come out of it faster and more effective. So it, what it means is that when you're resilient, the disruption doesn't knock you down. It actually makes you better. Right. And so when we think about bouncing back, so, you know, when we asked everybody at the beginning, I was kind of doing the research and we said, okay, well, what's resilience? The number one answer you get is, well, resilience, it's about bouncing back. Right. Well, the thing is just picture a ball, right? If you bounce a ball, it never bounces higher the second time, mm -hmm. right? The more it bounces, it sort of peters out. Right. And that's what happens to us in tough situations when we're not resilient. They beat us up and we get crushed and we get smaller and smaller and smaller, right? And we, we get weaker and weaker. But when we're resilient, we take those situations and we're able to figure out what we learn from them. We make meaning in the situation. We figure out how to improvise. And we, we figure out um, you know, all of these things that make us better and stronger and more effective so that as soon as the next one hits, we're more equipped to deal with it. And so 
I, I strongly believe, and I'm, I'm so excited to be here because I love the premise of your podcast, this whole notion of building the next generation of leaders. Yeah. We believe that leadership is the, or I'm sorry, resilience is the number one characteristic of leaders today. Mm-hmm. And if we don't start building it, we are dead in the water. And for years, nobody was talking about it. And, you know, now all of a sudden I feel like we, we were, the book was probably about, about a year ahead of its time. I mean, I think the idea was about five years ahead of its time, but it took yeah. us a while to write the book. But this year has sort of cemented the, um, you know, the notion that resilience is so critical. But I mean, for years now, I felt we were the only ones talking about it. And I think yeah. it's just, it's so important if the, if the next generation can do one thing, um, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important. And you kind of talked about it in there, that, that mindset, it's like walking into 2020 and having everything come crashing down on you and be joyful about it because there's something you can learn from it. And that's an absolute mindset switch that you have to make and that young leaders have to make. And so I want to ask you what it looks like to get to that place in your mind where you're able to see a situation that is negative and see it as a positive moving forward? What, yeah. what does it take to switch your mindset? It, well, it's not easy, but first of all, you have to acknowledge what your mindset is in the beginning, right? So we all look through, um, we look at the world through what we call filters. And so the book talks quite a bit about how to identify the filters and your filters are shaped by your attitudes, your beliefs, your experiences, everything you've gone through, your family. I mean, there's all kinds of things that shape our filters, but here's the thing. We get to pick the filters that we use every day. So if the filters you have aren't serving you, then you get to choose. You can pick a different filter. And so one of the things um, to shift that mindset, I mean, one of the the number one things we talk about in the book is the adopting the filters that you choose to adopt are going to shape your ability to change your mindset. So we, we suggest adopting a filter, and this is a bit controversial, but the filter that life is hard. Mm. Um, is an incredibly effective filter. Now your life not may not be hard. That yeah. may not be true. Um, it may be true. It may be not for you. But if you expect life to be hard, it suddenly ceases to be because you start to expect it to not be easy. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, things just kind of got a little bit easier because right. I didn't expect them to be easy. I expected to have to, to struggle a bit. And that's that's one of the filters that I think replaces this notion of entitlement um, in a big way. Mm. And that's some, I mean, I think, so first of all, it's figuring out what are the filters through which you're viewing a situation and then asking yourself, are these the most effective filters and is there potentially a better set? And the, the expectation of things to be difficult um, is a great place to start. Yeah. Let's even talk about that to this entitlement kind of culture. Cause that's, I think what I'm most scared of. And honestly, a big driver of this podcast is that we we're looking at a group of, of a generation, this generation Z, whatever you want to call them that have been given a lot. They've grown up in the most prosperous country. I mean, if you're just talking about, I mean, yeah. the young generation in the United States, the most prosperous country where they're given anything and, and it's created and you can kind of see it coming out in, yeah. in the media today and what, uh, what, how students and young people are responding to situations. And you can tell that there's entitlement there and that life isn't, hasn't been hard for them. <laughs> and so even expound upon that life is hard idea or this entitlement idea that 
I'm not, I'm not blaming our parents for anything, but I'm saying that we are, we're not ready for the real world. When you let these kids go, they're not ready. And there's no resilience. There's no, there's nothing there. And that's what I'm most afraid of whenever this generation gets out and they expect things to be given to them and it's not. And then what do you do then? You know, it's a huge, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it is incredibly frightening, you know, and I think what's, what maybe makes it harder. So I truly believe that each generation of parents, right. is doing the best they know how to try to give us better than they had. Right. Right. But over time, what's happened is that it's gotten easier and easier because our parents had it rougher and the generation before them had it tougher than that, you know, and, and so on before. Um, and so consequently, we have, a, you know, a whole group of people that wonderfully are raised without a tremendous amount of hardship. Yeah. But um, on the backside, if they want to build resilience, they're going to have to be very intentional about it because they didn't learn to be resilient by having to go through a bunch of tough stuff. Right. Um, that said, I mean, we are where we are, right? So right. I, I think the sad part, you know, that I see, I think people that travel and people that have been to other countries and really see what it's like in other places, understand how good we have it here. Mm. Those that, you know, this is through which this is the only lens that they have viewed life, don't really understand how good we have it. I mean, the fact that you have, you know, if you have running water and you're not hungry and you had to, um, you know, you didn't have to forge for food this morning, you're in the 1% of the world. So people don't realize quite how good we have it. So I think, you know, more than anything, if this generation can get more exposure to other places, other countries, other styles of government, you know, that exposure can only help. Mm. But, and it helps, I think, too, it helps people frame you know, in their mind, how good we have it. It's, it's easy to complain, but if I think about what's really being complained about by some of these victim mentality entitlement people, yeah. um, it's really a bunch of first world problems. Right. And those aren't really worth complaining about, you know, right. if, if you think about it. So I think this generation is going to have to take a very intentional look at how to come back. And let me say this differently how to go into difficult situations with an eye towards how they're going to come out of them. Mm. And that's going to take um, some real foresight and intentionality. And it's not going to be easy for this, for the, you know, the entitled of the world, but I think it's completely possible. Mm. Um, You've just got to own it and own that, you know, this is your filter and it isn't really the same filter that everybody has. So you have to be open to the fact that it can be viewed differently um, and, and getting really intentional about how you're going to build that personally for you. Um, right. And the book will give you a great place to start. Um, you know, the other thing I think when I think about this kind of new generation of leaders, we sort of, what I see is we seem to jump off into the leadership space without really thinking about um, what, you know, intentionally who they want to be and what they believe. So when you think about um, standing up in a difficult situation, it is really hard to stand up when you don't know what you're standing on. Mm. And for many, they have never asked the question, you know, what are my core beliefs? Now, in an organization, you know, we have mission statements and values and things that are parallel to core beliefs. But I think in many cases, this notion of faith and core beliefs has kind of gone off the rails. 
Right. And that's just one simple thing that you can do. It doesn't matter what they are. What matters is that you know what they are for you. And understanding your core beliefs is really the first step, um, you know, to really building that resilience and building a platform to jump from. Yeah. And making sure that those beliefs that you have set in stone are unwavering. And that's something you're not willing to compromise right. on no matter what, ha- like no matter where 2020 goes, you're unwilling to compromise on what you believe. And I think we also need to realize that failure is good and failure is productive. And, and there's, yep. you can bounce back from failure, but you can also move forward and, and see failure as a learning opportunity rather than, than saying, oh, this happened to me, saying, no, this happened and we're going to move forward and we're going to be better because of it. Right. And I think it's, it's hard for this generation to build that resilience because the, you said the first, uh, the first way to build resilience is ha- going through a lot of traumatic experiences, going through things that force you literally to push forward. But something you keep going back to is that this generation is going to have to be intentional on building resilience. So without the experience of, of hardship, what does it look like to intentionally build resilience? Yeah. And that's, and that's exactly what the book is about. So when you yeah. think about the framework that you use to build resilience without the tough stuff. So resilience is a function of um, your mindset and the choices that you make. And underlying that are your core beliefs. So there's a, I'm trying to do the block diagram with my hands on the video, but but it's much better articulated in the book. But this notion of mindset is really a function of authenticity. How true are you to who you say you are and your, and your um, attitude? Are you choosing the attitude that's most appropriate for the situation? Or I should say most effective for the situation. And the choices you make are about your purpose knowing your purpose in any given situation and how you define success. And so the intentionality really comes when you're thinking through, um, it's hard to be authentic if you don't know what you believe, right? So you have to know what authentic actually is. So there's some, there's some tools and some frameworks in there to figure that out. Um, when we start talking about purpose and definition of success, those are things that you can intentionally think about before you ever get into a tough spot. Right. So, and what that enables you to do, and I, I'll tell you, my car fire story is, is a great example of this. So I'll come back to that. Yeah. What these things enable you to do is when you get in that situation, you already know what to do. You've already got um, the rock to hold on to that's going to guide you in that situation. So, and core beliefs do the same thing, but it's intentionally figuring out what do I believe? What do I know? What do, and I don't, and you, you nailed it though. What do I know? What am I absolutely 100% certain that I'll never waver on? Mm. What is my definition of success? And that's about who am I being when I'm being successful? So that when you're in a tough spot and you have to make a choice in the heat of the moment, you make that choice according to the person you want to be, not the person you're influenced to be because you're getting you know hit with whatever's happening. Right. So in the car fire story, um, I, so this, as the story goes, I was leaving um, a car dealership. I just had my transmission serviced. Now I know, I didn't know this at the time, but they managed to spill um, transmission fluid all over the exhaust manifold. So five minutes after I left the dealership, the car burst into flames. Mm. So I was driving down the road and the flames started coming up into the passenger compartment and uh, I was in traffic, (laughs) had to do something. So I pulled off into a Lexus dealer, ironically, and um, pulled into a parking spot. And as the car, you know, continued to burn, I threw my computer bag out the window and I had had foot surgery. So my foot was in a boot and I I, I threw the computer out. And then I literally dove headfirst um, away from the flames and rolled away from the car. 
And so the funny part was I was leaving um, the next day for a month and um, the car was packed full of stuff that I needed. And I was on my way to see a client, which of course that wasn't going to happen. So I stood in the parking lot as I watched this thing burn for 45 minutes, the entire engine melted. It was, they couldn't even do an investigation because there was nothing left. Um, So I had, and my heart's pounding as I tell the story, but as I stood there, I had a couple of decisions to make. So one was, how am I going to handle this? So there was now a crowd of people around me. The um, people from the Honda dealer came to to get me because I called and, you know, said, what'd you guys do? Right. And, you know, so they showed up. And so they were going to take me back to the dealership and I had to figure out, I mean, we knew they had done something. So I had to figure out, you know, how I was going to handle this. So somehow in the midst of this incredibly stressful, traumatic experience of watching all my stuff burn, I went back into the dealership and all I could think in my mind was I want it over as fast as possible. I want to minimize stress because I had a health condition that was aggravated by stress and I knew I had to minimize the stress, which meant I couldn't keep reliving it. Mm. And I I did not want to scream and yell. All I wanted was the fastest possible solution with the least amount of drama. Mm. So I walked in and I would have to say that in any other like situation in any other year of my life, I probably would have lost it screaming at the general manager and, you know, having a fit. And instead I went in and I said, okay, the car is gone. What are we going to do? He said, um, I don't know. We've never dealt with this before. I said, well, you better think of something. (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, well, you're awfully calm. And, um, I said, well, I don't have much choice right now, but we have to deal with this. And I've got to, you know, be a client in an hour and I've got to have a car. And so they said, how about Avis? I said, fine. So we went, they took me to Avis. They got me a car. They got me what I needed. And um, in the months that followed, I had a couple more decisions to make. um, Not the least of which was, do I want to own a car dealership? Because I had a very aggressive attorney who was ready to uh, make that happen. (laughs) And And instead I said, no, I want a fair deal. I want, I don't want to relive this in court. I don't want to have to give this testimony a million times. I just want it over. I want another car, same as the old car. I just want it. I want all my stuff replaced and I want to move on. And those decisions in that moment changed um, the course of how that incident went. And they changed the course, I believe, of my health that year. Um, And it was in in retrospect, wasn't until I processed it many months after that I realized how I was able to do that. And it was the sort of the same question of, you know, all the people saying, oh, you're nothing if not resilient. Well, how did you do that? When I look back, what I did was I had this crystal clear definition of success that I knew that in that moment, I was gonna be true to myself. Um, I was not, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna do everything that was true to my values and myself. Um, and every single piece of that definition of success got lived out in the way that situation was handled. Could I have made more money? Absolutely. Could I have come out with a better car, you know, owning a car dealership? Probably. But that wasn't what success looked like to me. And so that's the kind of thing where when we are crystal clear on who we need to be to be successful, when we're in that moment of choice, it becomes second nature. 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's an amazing story that shows that we are all in a constant state of becoming and, and you're becoming something every day. And you, you can look to the future and say, who and what do I want to become? Do I want to become this or do I want to become this? And I believe resilience will do nothing but push you towards someone, a leader, a follower, a father, a husband, a wife that you want to be. Resilience will only make you stronger. And you mentioned earlier kind of three aspects of resilient people that are in the books. Uh, so kind of break those down. What are those three aspects? What, what are the three things that we need in order to be more resilient whenever the car fires come towards our lives? Yeah. So, I mean, the first is the ability to improvise. So, you know, the ability, the ability to just um, make do with what we've got in a situation. So not wishing we had more, not you know, scramble, you scramble to make do with what you have, right? But this ability to improvise is something that resilient people and organizations all have in common. Um, another one is the ability to find meaning in a situation. So, you know, the, the idea that when a situation happens, um, we're going to take a step back and really learn from it and figure out um, what is the lesson? What do I take away from this? So, I mean, I think, and that, that's a really critical one in terms of um, how do we use these situations to get better so that we don't keep going back? I mean, and what, and what happens with this bouncing back thing, right, is by the time we try to go back, the world has changed so fast that there's no back to bounce to, right? right? It's all about moving forward. We've got to move forward. So how do we find meaning in a situation? And, and in a company that might be, you know, we do a project and then we look back and we do like an after action review and figure out what we learned. But individually, I think it's also um, when you're going through a situation, it's not being the victim. It's finding that meaning and figuring out what's the lesson that you can take forward. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. Finding meaning there too. You even mentioned in there being the victim because you see it in our, in what's going on today. You know, I, I mean, in your situation, uh, you, my car is burnt up by this dealership. I'm going to go burn down this dealership. You know, it's that reactionary that you did this to me. Now I have to do that to you. And in, in reality, if you would have walked into that dealership, screaming, mm -hmm. waving your hands and, and insulting these people, they wouldn't have given you what you needed. They wouldn't have been so inclined to help you to get to Avis and, and to help you find these cars because you were insulting them. No one's ever been insulted to uh, agreement. You know, you, you just don't That's get right. it by that. And, and so I, I've always been confused by people. And, and I understand the heat of the moment and literal heat of the fire, but the heat of the moment, you're, you're frustrated and, and you want to go in and you want to really turn this place up, but the ability to stay calm, to stay within your own mind and the ability to, to see people as people and not just as problems or as a roadblock in, in your way is really what moves people and moves people to, to agreement or, or to even help you out. Because really in that situation, you had nowhere else to go. This dealership right. was really all <laughs> all you had. And You're so, right. I mean, they had to help you, but they were definitely more inclined because of the way uh, that you were able to improvise and see a, a situation. We're going to learn from it. But right now, I, the amount of screaming and yelling is not going to bring my car back, you know? Right. And so at some point you just have to treat, deal with people as people. And so I kind of want to talk about the flip side of resilience uh, in a culture okay. of teams. If we don't have, do you have another one? Yeah, let me give you one more. So there are three. So That's what did, I thought. I was a little, I was a little yeah, worried. No, I was did, like, did too. She's gonna get. She's gonna make us read the book. No, no, no. The third one. She's gonna leave us on a cliffhanger. <laughs> well, 
You gave me a great segue though. This notion of, um, it's called the capacity to face down reality. Mm-hmm. So it's accepting the situation as it is and dealing with it just as it is. So you don't, you don't wish it was something else. You don't, um, you know, it's, it's very empowering to accept a situation as it is, which is a total opposite of being the victim. Right. Right. And so in that moment, it's like, okay, the car's gone. It makes no sense to go crazy because the reality of it is we've got to go from here. So we have to, our starting point is, okay, there was just a big fire. Yes, they caused it. Yes, they probably deserved a lot worse than they got. Right. Um, but the reality of it is, is that I just had to figure out how to move forward. So this notion of the capacity, just the ability to really accept, and, and sometimes I'll call it a firm grasp on reality, um, is something that also can quickly get us out of that um, victim mentality. Because I think often when we get stuck in victim, we're kind of like wishing it was something else, right? We're mad that it wasn't what we wanted. And so we get stuck in this endless spiral. But at the end of the day, if we just accept that it is what it is, then we can get out of it sooner. So, okay. <laughs> yes, no, that's great. So that's, those are the three. We have to, improv- uh, have, to have the ability to improvise, ability to find meaning and the capacity to face down uh, reality. Yeah, you got it. That's great. I, I mean, those are three things that we need to internalize and know we have to be able to improvise. I mean, the situations are going to be thrown at you where you have to deal with what you've got, the reality that you have. And that's part of leadership is really defining reality for those you're leading and being able to improvise with what you have and to yep. find meaning in every situation because you know that you're becoming something and you get to choose what that is. And, and I think those three are just so huge and so important, but I kind of want to flip do the flip side of resilience. What are kind of the derailers? What is, what is um, hindering teams and people from oh. this growing process of becoming resilient? What is, what is that? Great question and totally appropriate for today. And honestly, if I, um, if, you know, my, my year ago self, I probably would have added another uh, section in the book, but we have a section on the derailers of resilience. And I think, you know, the, the summary there is anything that causes people to feel like they can't contribute their best mm-hmm. is going to take away from your ability to build a resilient organization. And so as we think about, you know, things like um, discrimination, the Me Too movement, anytime a person or a group of people is marginalized, what, what, this is an interesting phenomenon with resilience. Resilience has a lot to do with in an organization, right? We fill, it's like, imagine a gas tank, right? We fill the tank so that when we need it, we have a little bit of extra energy. Right. But what happens is when, when we need to be resilient, we need, it becomes kind of an all hands on deck um, situation, right? We need everybody to be at their best, doing, doing their best work, ability to contribute fully. But when people are marginalized or we have discrimination or we have, whether that's because you're a woman or whether you're a minority or whether, um, and frankly, it happens to white men too. So we know that, um, we know that's also true, but when someone is marginalized, they are thinking about something other than the number one thing that you need to accomplish right now. And so they can't contribute at their best. They don't have as much in the tank because you're taking all this extra energy to deal with something else. And one of, one of the something else's that I put in the book um, is kind of interesting is this notion of food. Mm. 
And, you know, right now, if I had to rewrite that chapter, I mean, I might think about, um, you know, our racial discrimination or something else as, as important, but I, I don't know that it's any more or less important. But right. any situation where someone doesn't feel like they're completely included um, is going to cause them to have to feel unsafe or do other things other than focus on your situation. Um, the situation, I mean, like the business situation that's causing you to need resilience. So, right. you know, if someone can't find food that they can eat safely in a meeting that takes away their ability to focus. If someone is sitting there thinking that they didn't get a position because of the color of their skin, or um, someone is not listening to them because of their gender, they can't, they're not able to give you that 110%, which is what you need in the moment of needing resilience. And so those are the things that from a derailing standpoint, we need to get rid of in organizations if we want to be really resilient teams. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting uh, idea too, is this idea of safety. And I think there's even a book, uh, I don't know if you've read it, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it talks about, um, have you read it? No, but I, but it sounds like a great book though. I'm gonna it's, have to very, it's very interesting. That. But it, it talks a lot about this idea of safety and what it looks like, what uh, kind of my generation and what the younger people view as, as safety. And if I'm not included, I'm not safe. Or if I'm not heard, I'm not safe. Or, you know, or like words hurting now, you know. So kind of where have we missed it on that? Or what, what do you kind of believe about safety in there? Because that's, it's kind of hard. I don't well, know. It's weird. <laughs> it's a little dicey. I'm going to say what I think about safety is probably a little different than what your generation would say about safety. Of course. No, uh, safety is being in a, like not, not being not safe is being in a fire that, right. a car that's on fire, you know? you know? I mean, people have different ideas of what safe is, right? So I don't, I have to be honest, I have minimal sympathy for some of the concepts of unsafe oh, right now. I agree. <laughs> no, me too. Um, but that said, so if we're gonna have a firm grasp on reality and accept the situation the way it is, we have to realize that there are people that um, are going to feel unsafe if, you know, in a situation that you and I might deem as safe, right? Right. So I, I don't, it's interesting, the word coddle is a good one. I don't, yeah. so there's a part of me that's like, you know, suck it up, buttercup, right? Right, <laughs> because like, well, in my uh, mind, like if we're coddling them, if they're unsafe in a situation like that, is that hurting their resilience in the end? <laughs> that's an excellent question. You know, that's just kind of where my mind went there. Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I'm torn. I'm actually torn between the notion that we want to create environments that equip people to contribute at their best. Right. Um, and so there is a reason to make people feel accepted. Okay. I, I think that is, um, I don't think that's going to go away. Like, yeah. I, I think we have to kind of accept that. I also do think that there's an element of, um, let's just say filters. Yeah. <laughs> with, this, with this generation that could benefit from, you know, uh, maybe a, a stronger filter around, um, sometimes things are just hard yeah. and you're going to have to, you know, fight through it and deal with it and not give up. And I think that notion that life is hard, it would be a wise filter for those whose minds need to be coddled. Yeah. But at the same time, I also don't want to minimize um, the degree to which we get a better outcome when we have divergent um, and diverse thinking 
focused on a particular issue, which is often required, you know, to overcome it. And so what happens, and this is also in the book, but without throwing a whole other concept in here, yeah, what happens is that the challenges we're facing today are infinitely more complex than they were even, you know, two to five years ago. Right. And they're not challenges the leader can come in and say, I've got the answer. You know, it's the big man leadership. I've got the answer. Let me tell you how to solve the problem. Or we're going to hire somebody that knows the answer and we're going to have them come in and tell us what to do. These are complex challenges that require us to mobilize people and really figure out how to get different thinking on the table where it can be discussed and digested and people can be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And the, the issue with this notion of safety is we have to create environments where people can be vulnerable. Right. And I don't want, so that's the part I don't want to minimize. Right. I agree um, with you there. Totally. I think that's important when, when it comes to getting ideas out, you know, but I, I also think you, you bring up a great point that sometimes we just need to toughen up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we do. It's okay to scrape your knee. You're going to be all right. And you're going to get up and you're going to run faster because you know, right back there is a rock that I tripped on and, and next time I won't trip. Uh, but it's okay. And so, yes, I, I agree with you. We need to create spaces and that's a leader's job to define the reality and create a space where every voice is heard and every every person at the table's their opinion is valued and not minimized. Um, but it's okay to be unsafe as well. And it's okay to, to toughen up. And we, we totally agree on that. And I, I think I have two more just thoughts for you. Okay. Looking at COVID-19 uh, and this crisis, what do teams now need to be doing or what do teams now need to be thinking of uh, in order to come out of this more resilient? Great question and totally appropriate for right now. I have a lot of those conversations. I think right now it's about this require this time requires us to be a lot more intentional about how we're going to build that resilience and how we're going to interact as a team. And we've lost the informal interactions, the water cooler, the, you know, milling around the lunch room or whatever it is coming in and out of the office in the morning. We've lost all of that ability to where we normally build relationships. Mm. And so I think the biggest things that teams can do today is to figure out a way to stay connected. And how do you replace these informal interactions? Because you're not going to build those kind of relationships when it's all business all the time on a Zoom call. And it may still have to be on a Zoom call, right? But you may have to do, you know, virtual happy hours and virtual 15-minute check-ins or there's lots of things that we can do. And I know nobody wants to sit on Zoom any longer than they have to. Yeah. But I think this time requires us to be much more intentional about um, how we interact and how we build a team. That's good. I don't think we've given it all up because think of how many people, um, how many people's kids we've met, how many dogs and cats we've met, how many pairs of pajamas have we seen, right? We are getting to know people a bit, Yeah. Um, but the question is, what do we do with that? And how, how can we be more intentional, um, about designing those interactions so that we can bond as a team? Yeah, I love that. That that's that's so good. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing. Uh just that human interaction, someone at the at, in the break room just getting to talk and learn about their life. And but it is funny to see people in different pajamas or in their home being <laughs> that is a vulnerable environment, I'll tell you that. Uh, okay, Jennifer, this is the question that I warned you about before we were <laughs> before we were live. Uh 
we love asking it to all our, all our leaders we get to talk to is what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? If you were to look back with the experience, the resilience you've gained, what would you tell that 20 year old right now? Yeah, I, I think the resounding answer is every situation is a chance to be who you really are. Mm. So figure out early who that is and, and use every situation that you have to really be who you are. I mean, when I look back at my 20-year-old self, I mean, it's a little mortifying, actually. Um, <laughs> when I think about, you know, the people that, that knew me early in my career, oh, my God, I feel sorry for them. Um, you know, but had I, had I realized that um, every situation is a chance to be who you really are, I would have thought about who that needed to be much earlier, and I would have made choices that... Um, that went along with that. And I probably would have been a whole lot less cocky. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a lesson we all need to hear. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. It was so, it was just a, a joy to talk with you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it as well. And I, I'm, I can't, I'm about to get in the car and I can't wait to listen to a bunch more episodes of your podcast. I'm so well, excited. Oh, before we go, where, where can we find the book? Where can uh, our oh. listeners find it? Um, sure. If you go, if you go to my website, there's a section called resilience book, www.leadership.com backslash resilience book. Um, that's one way to get it. It's also on Amazon at resilience. It's not about bouncing back. You can get it there. Um, and you can certainly reach me through the website as well. www.leadershiftinsights.com. That's great. Well, Jennifer, we love it. Go visit our website, buy the book, become more resilient as you come out of this pandemic. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Jennifer. Thank you.